is gorgeous. Junior Church, you are dismissed to walk. Four years old through fourth grade. Remember, um, all those who are in service, you can use the Bible app, the version, to follow along on your phones and keep notes with everything that's on the screen and more. We are on destination this year. That's our theme for this year. And whenever you go on vacation, you have various destinations that you'll want to visit. There are many places in the United States that are just great to visit. Some are great like Charleston. Others are not great like Detroit. There is a place, though, in South Dakota. It's kind of an odd place to visit. In fact, if you were to leave right now from this spot, it would take you 12 hours, 44 minutes to reach 604 North Main Street, Mitchell, South Dakota. Okay, so that's, that's the route to get there. And do you know what you would find at 604 North Main Street in Mitchell, South Dakota? You would find this. The Corn Palace. The only Corn Palace in the world. I have actually been to the Corn Palace. Those are actual corn cobs. Can you back up one picture? I know that they're animated. So watch what this does. So you can see the front. Those are all corn cobs. That's a close-up of the corn cobs. They designed this. Here's the story. In 1892, the world's only corn palace was established. During its 100 years of existence, it has become worldwide. And it attracts people from all over the globe. Um, they have these fall festivals, extraordinary stage entertainment, a celebration to the climax of all the crops growing season and harvest. And I've got to see three different designs in purpose, in person I mean, on the corn palace. The palace is decorated each year with naturally colored corn and other grains, native grasses, to make this show place to the world. Um, there are 12 colors, I had to find this out, 12 different colors and shades of corn that they use to decorate. I didn't know there were 12 colors of corn. That was kind of neat for me. Ear by ear, those corn cobs are nailed to the corn palace to create this scene. The decorating process usually starts in late May with the removal of the Raya dock. The corn murals are then stripped at the end of August, and the new ones are completed by the 1st of October. From first-hand experience, let me just tell you, it is a very corny place to go. And they have those kind of puns all over the place. As we continue through our study of Acts, we're visiting various cities that Paul goes to while he's on his secondary missionary journey. Today we come to the town of Athens. Athens became known for its military power. Athens reached the height of its glory under Persiles in uh, 495 to 429 B.C., in which it became known for numerous temples, splendid buildings, and for being the center of literature, of science and rhetoric. It attracted all types of intellects from all over the world. The war with Sparta that lasted 27 years put the end of the greatness of Athens. And even though it wouldn't return to that former glory, it still held its reputation for intellectual excellence some of the great philosophers of its time were known to have come there, Socrates, Plato, 
um, Aristotle, um, and others. Even though it's become conquered by Rome in 146 B.C., during Paul's day, Athens was considered a free city that was known for all those great things. So Athens is, is where we're going today. Now, religions have existed since the beginning of time. You can see a divergence of belief systems shortly after the Garden. Each country and culture tends to have their own view of religion and gods. Most countries, with the exception of the nation of Israel, were polytheistic in nature. Greece was certainly no example to that rule. Greek mythology has its beginning around 3000 B.C., became fully developed around 700 B.C., and Greek mythology has several different distinguishing characteristics. The Greek gods resemble humans in form. They have feelings. They, Unlike the ancient religions such as Hinduism or Judaism, Greek mythology does not have any spiritual teachings. It's just whatever the gods felt like they wanted to do at that time. Um, it varied and widely practiced as a belief with no formal structure. They didn't have to have temples, uh, but they did have them for specific reasons. The, the Greeks believed that the gods chose Mount Olympus in northern Greece as their home, and this is where the gods formed their ranks of authority and prestige. Zeus was the head of the gods, the father of all the people. Now, it emphasized, Greek mythology emphasized the weakness of, of humans compared to the terrifying powers of nature, which must mean that they are gods. They believe that these different things all over them were inhabited or controlled and powered by the gods, who these gods would either choose to bless them or curse them based on the mood of the god. And that's all. It wasn't because they did good things. It was just, well, if the god's in a good mood, he's going to bless us. And so they had all these various gods because they didn't want to offend any god that they had forsaken. Um, by the time Paul arrives in Athens, Greek mythology was so deeply rooted in every aspect of Greek life. Each city devoted itself to a particular group of gods, but here they would have festivals. We just had a festival in Auburn, the Free Fair. And you can see... Auburn's got a lot of weird people that come to the free fair. So the, the attire of our clothing that was there and the attitudes and the actions, it was like, that's odd. That's nothing compared to Athens when they would have their God festivals, when they would come and do these celebrations. Greek parents taught their children about the gods at their own home. Different parts of their homes were dedicated to different gods. An altar of Zeus, for example, would be out in their courtyard, while Apollo might be located in another part of the house because they didn't want to offend certain gods and give a little bit of attention to Zeus that Apollos would have wanted. They were so scared of offending these different gods that they lived in fear of making sure they tried to please everybody. Now let's see what happens when Paul gets there. That's the context. Now let's get to the content. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and following. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. 
He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, before we get further in this, let me, let's stop and let's ask God to really speak to us. God, we come before you. And Lord, as we look into your word here and seeing what Paul is going to preach, what he's going to say to these people in Athens, help us to see what city we are living in. Help us to know and to hear your word today, God. Invade this place. Fill us with your spirit and speak to us in a mighty way. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So it said Paul gets to Athens and he is deeply distressed. He is deeply distressed to see all these idols that filled the city. These people were extremely zealous about their religion, which shows is shown by the sheer volume of all the idols they had there. See, the people of Athens were living in religiosity. I did it again. City. We're visiting different cities. Here we are seeing religiosity, and it is a real word. I didn't make it up. They were very religious. They went about various forms of worship styles and services. They wanted to make sure they said the right prayers. They gave the right blessings. They were very religious. But does that mean they were right? Paul started preaching and teaching the truth about the only God, the real God. His teaching led him from the synagogue to the public streets. Pick it up at verse 19. And then they took him, meaning Paul, to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want you to know what it's all about. It should be explained that the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Right there is just a snippet of their culture, which seems mirrored today. Verse 22, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it. To the unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. Paul, Paul wants these people to move from living in religiosity to a better place in their life. A place of truth. And Paul uses something common, something that they would have known, this unknown God. Now, there was a, a record to be somewhere between two to 3,000 different idols in this town. Two to 3,000. Can you imagine? You walk on the street, and, oh, i got to pray to this God now, and i got to pray to this God. Oh, I offended this God. i got to say something here. And then I get over to this God. I can't even say this God's name, but i got to say something to him. All day long, their whole city was filled with this. An ancient writer, Petronius, joked, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. They had that many statues and beliefs. All throughout the city of Athens, there are statues, altars, temples to these pagan gods. These Greeks prized wisdom and knowledge, so they said, above all things. They seemed to be very advanced people, but yet they failed to see the irony of all their gods. They were worshiping these statues that they had built with their own hands. 
How could they create their gods and call them superior? How could they distinguish and shape this rock and then say, this rock created me? How is it that the Greeks didn't see the foolishness of their practices? Say you're ancient Greek and you believe in all the gods, so one day you take a piece of clay, you mold half of it into a bowl that you eat out of, and the other half you mold into the statue god for your home. How do you know you use the right half? What if you're eating out of your god and you're worshiping a bull? That's really the context of what they're doing here. You made them both. They were both done by your own hand, and neither one has capacity to do anything for you greater. Paul brings up the statue, the unknown god, grabs their attention, but he's going to bring something. He points out to something familiar to them to bring them to the unknown. When living in religiosity, we need to understand people focus on rituals. That's why he had to point at this. Rituals for them would have been placing various statues all over their home, as I said, or their employment. They would have gone through various festivals and activities. They would have done all these things, said these things, wore the right charms just to please all these different gods. But these rituals were empty. Rituals make us feel good. Like we're doing something, but in truth, they are empty. And Paul wants to move them away from religiosity, from just fulfilling rituals, into something real. Which is what he said in verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Notice this is all directed out Mount Olympus, then all of their temples. And humans can't serve his needs like they do to their shrines, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. We can't satisfy his. He's the one who gives us satisfaction. From one man, he, God, created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him, find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some as your own poets have said, we are his offsprings. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by a craftsman from gold, silver, or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day of judgment, set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has approved, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. If being religious or intellectually gifted could bring salvation, the Athen people would have been the best Christians. If just doing the rituals and having religion was all it took, these would be the pinnacle of being Christians or being spiritual. Athens was the intellectual center of the world at Paul's times. The greatest philosophers, as I said, all came from there. And yet, in spite of their intellectual proudness, it was 
spiritually ignorant and deeply idolatrous. They went through a myriad of rituals to try and please the plethora of various gods they had, but to what avail? Instead, Paul offers them a way out of these empty rituals. Paul guides them to review truth. We need to review truth. Uh, That's the next blank. I think I forgot to put it in the bulletin, so just back up there. That's my fault, Vic. So from those rituals, we need to review truth. The truth is a real God would not need people, doesn't need them. A real God would not be bound by by what people can build or offer. A real God is not limited like the Greek gods are. They serve a controllable God, one that easily pleased in anger. And Paul shows them, look at the truth. Review truth. A real God who created everything from the beginning. A real God who determined who was going to rise and fall. A real God who is going to bring judgment. It's not done by one or by many gods. It's all done by one. He is too holy to be bound by mankind. He has no needs. He is the sustainer of life. The true God is calling all of mankind, Paul says, to him. The true God commands people to return to him. The true God commands people to do this. Paul is basically saying, review these truths. Quit going off of superstition. Quit going through rituals. Don't do rituals to make yourself feel good. Actually review them. See how these truths are actually going to awaken you. Now go to verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. When Paul is finished, not everyone accepted and believed. This is one way we can tell the Bible is true, because if we were going to write it, we would say he won them all over. Instead, uh, Luke, who wrote this, said they laughed at him. Some accepted, some laughed. And this shows that those who live in religiosity, they live there by choice. They're not forced. They can leave when they want to. They can choose to stay in religiosity, filled with their empty, hollow rituals. Or they can choose to review that truth. To leave religiosities, they need to repent of their past. Repent means turn away from completely, get away from that. And that's what Paul tells them to do, which is a word that is used frequently in Scripture for a good reason. It's a lot in this city, but how does that apply to us today? Howard Carter searched for the tomb of King Tut, and in 1920, he found it. He got to the sarcophagus and opened up the coffin. In it, he found another coffin. This one was more elaborate with gold leafing on it. He opened that one and a third coffin was found. It was open and there was a solid gold fourth coffin. After that was open, they found a gold cloth on top of the body. Now just look, there is those uh, rendering of those coffins, those gold coffins here. But underneath all of that was that. 
Now, just hold this picture for a moment. Man is a very religious creature. The world is full with religions. Muslims, Buddhists, Shinto, Confucius, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian scientists, Catholicism, tribal uh, religions, Christianity, and so many more. Very religious, and many so lost. And those who look, who love to live in religiosity are looking just like the coffins. They look great. They are filled with all these good things, but internally, inside, they're dead. Oh, they look good. They can do all these great things. But internally, they are just as dried, as withered as this king cut. Apparently, he was a good-looking guy. Can't tell, can you? He's smiling. It's not something you want to look like, is it? I know that was gross and funny. Okay, you can turn it. Remember who Paul preached to first. He went to the Jews. The ones who should have known better. There's this city full of idols. And Paul is deeply distressed. And then he goes and preaches and teaches to the Jews who should have been deeply distressed. That there were all these idols. That there were all these people living in religiosity. The ones who should have known better. They were living in a city full of beautiful coffins, but dead people. There's no life. Just religiosity. And that's what was happening to the Jews. They were doing the same thing. They fell into the same thing where they wanted to make sure they they followed all the rules, that they did all the rituals, that they looked good, but they had nothing real with God anymore, and they became hollow and empty. The few who accepted the truth Paul was preaching... Those few who reviewed the truth and then repented of living in religiosity, they left that empty place and came to a new place to live. It's a wonderful place. And really, what is that is what all of us need to learn here today. Because some of us right here are living in religiosity, even though you don't want to acknowledge it or you don't want to accept it. But there are people who live here. But just like those in Athens, we can leave. Paul invited them to repent of that and turn away. How do we know when we're living in religiosity? Well, the the answer is simple. When we are going through the rituals. When all you're doing is going through the rituals. It's Sunday morning, got to get up, get to church, put on a smile, sit there, pretend to pay attention, and go home. That's religiosity. But I don't like surface, so we're going to go a little deeper. And I wrote this next section, and erased it three times. Wrote it, erased it, wrote it, erased it, because uh, it is hard. And so, some of these statements might hurt. They might really hit you, and I'm not saying these to purposely cause anyone pain. I had to make sure I was not thinking of people in this. I wanted to know what did God say. But like Paul, I have to preach what is true. I, I, I have to. God has said it. And so when it hurts me or when it hurts you, I'm still going to say, I want you to know I'm saying this in as much love as I can. Every one of us here needs to review truth from time to time to make sure we are truly growing in our faith, not just attending a service. 
So after doing lots of reading and scripture and stuff, here's some statements. You will know you are living in religiosity when you equate going to church service as growth in your faith. Oh, I went to church. That's, that doesn't equal growing in your faith. If you focus on physical things over the spiritual, then you are probably living in religiosity. If you focus on the amount of finances you give as a sign of your faith, then you are living in religiosity. If you say things like, well, I help with the building, I mow the church lawn, I help clean the building, I pass out bulletins, I donate my time or services for a project. I, if you say those, test, those statements as a testament that I have faith, you're living in religiosity because none of those had anything to do with anything but rituals. Those are good things. Those are things that need done, but they are not spiritual. God does not dwell in a place that is built by man. So we don't have to worry about maintaining the building to make him happy. Instead, he lives where? In us. And we need to make sure that God, who is a spirit, his people must worship in truth and in spirit, as scripture said. All those things are good, but they're ritualistic. If you cannot specifically give areas where you are growing in faith, if you cannot describe how God has personally guided you into a strong, deeper faith, then you are re residing in religiosity. And just like the, king, the tomb of King Tut, elaborate outer display, and underneath something old, dry, withered, and dead, and spiritual reality. A person may very well impress the world around them by their religiousness and put on a big production when it comes to their spiritual life. But in truth, it's a tomb. And we all, let me say this, all tend to want to be in religiosity. From time to time, we all move there. But God does not live there. He does not live in religiosity. God does not want us to live there. Paul taught, uh, people talk about God in religiosity, but God is not there. Instead, we need to review the truth, repent of religiosity, and actually move to where God is, which is in relationship. One Easter service, a minister in, southern, in a southern church was shocked. Dennis Brown came forward and said, I have been a very religious person all my life, but I realize I've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Dennis had grown up in that church. He learned to say the right things, do all the right things, pray the right prayers, sit and stand at the right time, but he never met Jesus as his Savior. The, the craziest part about Dennis Brown, he was a deacon. He went through all the motions. He was even talked to about being an elder because he grew up in the church and people loved him. He was a great guy. But he never had a relationship until that morning. And he said it. He lived in religiosity. He was very religious. But that morning, Dennis let go of religiosity and he moved into relationship. Enthusiastic religious activity and a high, lofty intellect are far from the righteousness of God. Let, let me say that again. Enthusiastic religious activity and a high, lofty intellect are far from God, far from the righteousness that God requires. To attain the righteousness that God requires, 
to have that righteousness of Christ living in us, we cannot do that through rituals. A wedding does not make a couple. A wedding does not make a marriage. A wedding's a ritual. What makes a marriage? Love. Communication. What? A covenant, a promise to each other. There's more. What makes a marriage? And if you can't answer this, I'll just let you know I do marriage counseling. Commitment, time, practice, grace, forgiveness, patience. What? Trust, not the wedding. And yet, what do we focus on? The ritual. Now, weddings, I'm sure you love them. Great. But the marriage that stands, the marriage that lasts, the marriage that stands up while the, all the world is throwing all these things at them, they stand up and say, no, by God, we will stand here together. You want to get to her, you will come through me. And if you want to get to me, you have to go through Christ. That's a marriage. It's not a wedding. What makes a Christian? It's not attending church. I want to say something very bold, very bold right now. Demons attend church. Demons attend church every Sunday. They're picking at us, speaking into our minds trying to distract us from God's truth. They are here. If attending a church service made us a Christian, then all the demons would be in heaven. Attending, participating in activities doesn't make us a Christian. Doing rituals doesn't make us a Christian. It can only come through a relationship. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or are you practicing religion? Unfortunately, there are Christians all over that will be milling in buildings today, coming um, to worship services. They are living in religiosity, but they are not in a relationship with God. Religiosity is easy. Relationship requires effort. Religiosity is outward focused on my outside, while relationship is inward. How do I love God? How do I honor Him? Religiosity is for self-driven because I have done these, I look better, I have accomplished these, while relationship is God-driven. What brings Him glory? What gives Him honor? Religiosity is fake, while uh, while relationship is real. God is inviting all of us here to join him in relationship, to leave religiosity, to actually be with God, to leave the fake and to enter something real. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or are you practicing religion? And I sat there after I wrote that statement, I sat there and just looked at it and There have been times in my Christian faith that I have left the relationship and went back into religiosity. Do you know why? It was a lot easier, less demands, and a lot of accolades from the outside. The 
religiosity is so fake. It wears you out. It is so hollow and empty. And I had to repent and return back to relationship. Being in a relationship with God is hard. He has high standards. He expects a high commitment. And he always gives a great reward. You don't get any of that over there. You don't. And part of the reason why the world seems so similar to the church is maybe because we have turned so religious like them. And it is time we break out of the shackles of religiosity and say, I know my God. I don't know about him. I know him. I commune with him. I talk to him. And I actually hear him communing back to me and through me. I see his hand. I hear his voice. I know when he is present. Because I have a relationship with him, I recognize him. And it is time the church say, get rid of the religious, get rid of the rituals, and let's get real with God. Let's have a real God living in us, empowering us. And you know what's going to happen? That's when the gates of hell are going to shake with terror. That's when Satan's going to say, oh no, they woke up. The whole world right now is woke. They are not. They are fake. But it's time the church really awoke. It's time we arise and say, I want a real relationship. And there are people in this room who need to repent of it. And return or come to the first time to that relationship with Jesus. And if that's you, just know I'll be standing there with you. Because I have to fight it and face it every day. But if you need to do that, will you stand and say, I'm tired of being the fake, the religious, I want real. Will you make that commitment today? We're going to stand. We're going to sing a worship song. So if you would, go ahead and stand. And if you need to make that decision, I'll be right back.